It is so good to see you this morning, uh, whether you're worshiping with us live, face-to-face, and it's great to see you sitting in those pews, or whether you're online with us, we're, we're just glad that you're here. Really, this isn't about my favorite sermon, it is about my favorite text, uh, and my favorite story in the life of Christ, uh, and so I, I appreciate you being here uh, to listen. Um, one of my favorite Indiana museums to visit is called the ACD Museum in Auburn, Indiana. That stands for Auburn, Cord, and Duesenberg. And these restored classics are, are just simply stunning. These automobiles from a period of time in, in history, just, well, it's just my favorite museum. And they appear as if they just rolled off the uh, the, the assembly line out of the factories ready for purchase back in the 1930s. Uh, and I'm a purist, folks, when it comes to uh, old cars. I, I have never been one to get into the hot rod scene. I really like when an automobile has been restored back to its original condition so that it represents that period of history well. But here's the deal. It, that's, not, that's not an inexpensive thing to do. And if you've got something like a, a Duesenberg or a Cord or a Packard, you don't want just any old shade tree mechanic doing the work. No, such automobiles des- de- demand the master restorer's touch. And it's an expensive ordeal. But what price do you put on a rare classic? In similar fashion, what price would you place on a restored life? To know Jesus is to know the master restorer. Author Al Werder writes this. He says, it is particularly striking that all of Jesus' miracles, with the one exception of the cursing of the fig tree, are miracles of restoration. Restoration to health, restoration to life, restoration to freedom from demonic possession. I love the images of Jesus as the master restorer. And in Mark chapter 5 and also in Luke chapter 8, we are introduced to one of, I think, the most fascinating and impactful restoration stories in our Lord's earthly ministry. It's a beautiful example of what restoration is all about. Now, the story really kind of actually begins in Mark chapter 4. And it begins with a verse that we just kind of blow right past. Mark 4, 35 says, That day when evening came, he said to the disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Now, we blow right past that because for us, if somebody said that we're walking downtown on Kirkwood, and they said, Let's go over to the other side. That means go over and walk on the sidewalk on the other side of the street. No big deal. No, no big shakes. Not so here. I have been to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and it was, at this time, Gentile territory. Part of it still is, even today. The region was called the Decapolis. Deca, ten, polis, cities. Ten cities, the Decapolis. And these were ten Greek cities that were under the rule and the domain of the Romans and under the Romans' protection. At the time of Christ, it was a flourishing area, folks. There were exquisite temples and huge amphitheaters for entertainment that dotted the landscape. Sports were big. Arts and literature here flourished. All of this was just across the Sea of Galilee, about five miles away from Judea. Now, some of these structures that were over there would have been visible uh, on a clear day. And on festival days, I'm sure that the Jewish people could hear the music wafting across the water or catch whiffs of the smells of the cooking food. And this area was also home to a 
Roman legion. Now, Roman legion was 6,000 soldiers, not a small group, and they were stationed there. Now, every Roman legion had its own symbol, okay? The Roman legion that, that was garrisoned in the Decapolis, do you know what their, their symbol was? It was a boar's head. No animal was quite so repulsive to the Jewish mind as the pig. And there were lots of pig farmers on that side of the lake, as well as a Roman legion with the boar's head as their symbol. You know, I've often wondered that when Jesus was telling the old story about the prodigal son, that beautiful parable, and, and if he didn't point to the Decapolis when he said, and the, and the son squandered his money in a faraway land and ended up feeding pigs. It wasn't far away in distance, but it was far away in values. You see, the people on the other side, where Jesus said, let's go to the other side, these people were pagan, idol-worshiping, pork-eating, Jew-hating Gentiles, and they populated the area. Now, now keep that in mind, okay? Now, you say, well, what's the heritage of the Decapolis? Uh, well, according to Ray Vanderlaan and other scholars, the rabbinic tradition in Jesus' day noted that the Decapolis was an area of the seven nations of Canaanites who had settled down there. And you say, well, who are these seven nations? We go back to the book of Deuteronomy, and, and Deuteronomy spells out who they are. It says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations... The Hittites, Gergesites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Seven nations larger and stronger than you. So when the Jewish people come into the promised land, that's who's here. Paul in Acts chapter 13 says that God overthrew the seven nations and gave that land to the Israelites. But they're still there in the land of the Decapolis. And if that's true, and I certainly believe it is, this story takes on huge significance and we'll see that in a minute. So hang on. Keep all these pieces together, will you? All right, because we're going to get there. Now, Jesus and the disciples piled into the boats and set sail. And about mid-lake, they encountered a violent storm. And they are terrified. And remember, a lot of these guys are fishermen. They know that lake. They know storms. But this storm is so bad that they're all afraid of losing their lives. And you know what Jesus is doing? <laughs> He's sleeping in the stern. He's sleeping right through the storm. And so they wake him up, and Jesus, with the word, calms the raging sea. Boy, do these guys have a story to tell later. Who is this man that, with a word, can restore the sea to its calmness? Well, they finally make it to the other side, exhausted, soaked, and reeling from the fear that they've just come through. It's evening. The shadows are lengthening, and the air is growing cool. The disciples sort of brush themselves off and, and, and work out the wrinkles of their damp clothes, and they look up to find themselves, are you ready for this, in a foreign Gentile cemetery, a place that any good Jewish man would avoid like the coronavirus. Got the picture? These guys are way out of their comfort zones. I mean, who likes a cemetery even in sunlight? Nobody. But when dusk comes and a cool breeze and the shadows begin to reflect off the craggy cliffs, <laughs> I don't think so. Nearly every scary movie I've ever seen has a cemetery scene with a chilling breeze, eerie shadows, and mournful sound. 
moments. This was one of those moments when the hair on the back of your neck stands up and your goosebumps jump up and hug each other for comfort. As the disciples are trying to still their racing hearts, they are caught off guard by mournful sounds, eerie sounds, painful cries coming from somewhere in these craggy cliffs. Can't you just see these guys all huddled together, moving sort of like pig pen's shadow and dust cloud in, in Charlie Brown's comics, and they're all trying to hide behind Jesus. And then without warning, the demon-possessed man comes streaming out of the craggy cliffs right at them, running at the top of his speed, shouting at the top of his voice. Now, I don't know about you, but I would have passed out right there on the spot. I'd have been scared to death. I mean, who wouldn't have been scared to death at that moment? By the way, fear is universal, folks. We live in a culture that is handicapped by many fears, from hydrophobia to claustrophobia and everything in between. And if you don't have those kinds of fears, certainly during this time of the COVID-19 virus, you have been reminded of the fears that can captivate even an entire world. In the midst of all we've been through, there are those other fears that linger all the time. Economic chaos, joblessness, social unrest, random shootings, teenage pregnancies, drug addiction, broken homes, unexpected disabilities, incurable diseases, and being left alone in this world without the person you love most. It is no wonder that we spend a lot of our lives in fear. And you may be thinking, well, we have the right to be fearful, don't we? Well, maybe we do and maybe we don't. Perhaps our fears are exaggerated. Did you ever stop to think about that? In the book, Scared to Life, Douglas Rumford cites a study that explains why fears should not dominate our lives. 60%, in this study, 60% of our fears are totally unfounded. 60%, that's over half. 20% are already behind us. 10% are so petty they don't make any difference. That's 90%. So you're left with 10% of our fears. 5% of that remaining 10% uh, uh, are, are, are real, but you can't do anything about it, so you know why, why bother? The other 5% is something you can do something about, so why don't you do something about those fears, which basically boils down to the fact that of all of our fears, only 5% are legitimate fears. 95% of the stuff that really bothers us doesn't, doesn't matter, doesn't count. These words recorded in John's letter are worth remembering when you are facing fears. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Now keep that one handy for whenever the fears of your life seem to overwhelm. So, here are the disciples. They find themselves in a godless land, standing among unclean tombs, under the military protection of a Roman legion whose symbol was the head of a boar. I don't think they'd ever been creeped out this much in their lives. Now hang on to all this information, okay? It's all coming back together. The demoniac drops on his knees in front of Jesus and shouts at the top of his lungs, Jesus, Son of the Most High, in God's name, do not torture us. Wow. The demons knew who Jesus was, and they feared him. What's your name? Jesus inquired. Legion, for we are many. Now, legion is a loaded word. On the other side, remember, there is a whole legion 
a Roman soldier's garrison there. The pieces of this story just begin to come together. Now, folks, I cannot explain to you what demon possession is, but I believe it is real. I've spoken to too many credible scholars and too many missionaries not to believe. And I realize it is easy to have doubts about it. When something defies our sense of logic or contradicts what we can't explain scientifically or runs contrary to the experience of our five senses, we are understandably skeptical. And can I remind you this, that Satan is not bound to use the same methods from culture to culture. So if you think demonic forces are the fodder of fairy tales, let me ask you this. Which is worse? The man in this story who is possessed and causes those chains that he's bound with to be broken or the man whose obsession causes him to spend hours on pornographic websites and is chained to an addiction he can't break. Or which is worse, this man who lives in the shadows and calls at home or a man who secretly meets another man's wife in the shadows and destroys both of their homes. We think we're too sophisticated to believe in demonic forces, but I wonder if we aren't worse off because of our sophistication. And if not for the influence of Satan, how do we explain the wickedness of mass shootings and suicide bombers? Tens of thousands of Christians die globally every year just because they're followers of Jesus Christ. Folks, this is a spiritual battle, and the forces of evil will stop at nothing to succeed. So we need to pray for our brothers and sisters around the world and the, tempta- and, and the battles that they are facing and the temptations that could destroy them. Now, you're familiar with this principle, I'm sure. Nature abhors a vacuum. Jesus applied that very concept in a parable on demon possession in Matthew 12. He tells of a demon who departed a man, but the man failed to fill the spiritual void with anything better. And then Jesus goes on in Matthew 12, 45 and says this. Then the spirit finds seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they all enter the person and live there. And so that person is worse off than before. That will be the experience of this evil generation as Jesus speaks to the crowd. Now, the point is obvious. Getting rid of evil is not enough. There must be good to take its place. In a recent blog post, Bob Russell reminds us that this very principle applies to several areas of life. In our culture today, folks, there is a mad rush to eliminate the evils of our society. And the list of cultural ills seems endless. There are plenty of societal demons to go around. Racism, brutality, drug abuse, fatherless homes, chronic poverty. The list seems endless. But Bob makes this observation. He writes, the present focus is on identifying evil, protesting its existence, and driving it out. But an even more critical challenge is how do we fill an empty house? What can we do to be assured that seven demons worse than the first don't come in and dominate our residents? For sure, for sure, there are challenges that need to be, uh, there are changes that need to be made. There are challenges that need to be addressed. We can wipe the slate clean, but then what? What's the end game look like? Toss out law enforcement and anarchy rules. Wipe out history and the same awful mistakes will be made all over again. 
elevate one race above another, and hatred will divide and ruin us. Destroy somebody else's property in the name of freedom of expression, and somebody will destroy yours under the same banner of expression. People, I have visited more than one former Soviet country to teach, and if socialism and communism worked, those places would be paradise. But they're not. They're not even close. Do we have work to do? Oh boy, absolutely. But in our efforts to eradicate the wrong, let us make sure that we fill the voids with something godly, something good, something uplifting for all people. If not, the demons that follow will leave us worse off than before. The demons, legion, Beg Jesus again and again not to send them into the abyss, the bottomless pit where they will spend eternity. They pleaded with him to be sent into a nearby herd of pigs. And Jesus granted their request. And when they entered the pigs, the herd ran down the hill, over the cliff, and drowned in the sea. 2,000 pigs. Oh, what a loss. Think of all that bacon and pork chops. In the Sea of Galilee. And you thought that deviled ham was a brand new recipe, didn't you? So why did the demons do this? Why, why, why did they beg to go into the pigs and then kill all the pigs? Were they just wickedly cruel? Well, yes, they were wickedly cruel. But, the, but there's something deeper here. The demons were trying to get Jesus in trouble with these pagan people who were so susceptible to Satan's influence. Legion, the demons, did not want salvation and restoration to come to this part of the country. And it's very nearly worked. But Jesus knew that the loss of 2,000 pigs could not compare to the loss of one person's soul. Can you put a price tag on forgiveness and restoration and eternal life? What is your soul worth? Is anything worth clinging to if it costs you eternity? Just a short time earlier, the disciples had witnessed a battle between Jesus and the elements. Now it's Jesus and evil. Who was this man? Who was this man that not even angry waves or angry demons or angry pigs could defeat? I'm telling you, he is the master restorer. And though the crowds had flocked to Jesus in Judea, here there is no one to meet him except for this wild demon-possessed man living in a graveyard. And these demons had robbed him of everything important, friends, family, home, health, and mental clarity. He was the outcast of the community. They'd even tried to chain him, but he broke the chains. He had suffered great pain. He was bent on self-destruction. All of that until, until the evening he met. Jesus. And when the pig herders witnessed their income going over the cliff, they ran into town to tell the owners. The people then hurried out to see if what they had been told was true, and it was, and they were angry, and they were frustrated. But the demoniac, the demoniac is sitting calmly at the feet of Jesus. Here sat the man who had been the opposite of peace, He's he was an uncontrollable outcast that no one could tolerate and no one could chain. And suddenly, he has become the model of peace and tranquility. Now, folks, only Jesus can accomplish something like that. And then, then Luke adds this interesting twist at the very beginning of the story. 
Luke 8, 27 says, when Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived among the tombs. In other words, he ran around naked among the graves. But when the people of the village came out to see, he was sitting at the feet of Jesus, and the Bible says he was clothed and in his right mind. Can I ask you a question? Where'd he get the clothes? Where'd he get the clothes? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us. But I got a theory. I think Jesus gave him the robe right off his back. We would say it like this today. Jesus gave him the shirt off of his back. And wouldn't that be just like Jesus? When Jesus restores a life, he even attends to the smallest of details. Uh, It is interesting. When the people came out of town, they couldn't see past their fears. They should have reasoned, man, if Jesus can do that for this guy, he can take care of all of our problems, our illnesses. He can provide hope in our struggles. He can mend our broken homes, and he can restore our lives. But instead, their fear won out over their reason. 1 John 4, 18 says, perfect love casts out fear. But the opposite is also true. When fear is stronger than love, fear casts out love and it kept them from seeing the Savior's love and so they asked Jesus to leave. We don't want you here. And since Jesus never forces himself on anyone, he left. Retail giant Amazon tracks the highlights of those customers who use ebooks. I suspect many of you use ebooks. I do and I can t- and they can tell which sentences are most often highlighted in the ebook readers. And when the internet giant released their findings, I was encouraged to learn that the Bible is the most highlighted book of all. And do you know what the most highlighted verse out of Scripture is? It's not John 3.16. It's this one, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Our world is desperate to have a restored inner peace. And I'm here to remind you that it only comes from one source, the Prince of Peace himself. Now, now, okay, stay with me here, all right? We come to this pivotal point, Mark chapter 5. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. All right, we're coming to the, we're coming to the end now, folks. All right, and here's where all the pieces come together. Stay with me, all right? This, this is awesome. Fast forward to Mark chapter 8. <clears throat> Sometime later, Jesus returns to the Decapolis for a second time, and this time he is met by huge crowds. Interesting, isn't it? First time, only the demoniac was there to approach him. Second time, hundreds, thousands of people come to meet him. The community people had asked him to leave, but when he returns, there are thousands. What made the difference? Oh, it's not what. I think it's who. It started with the only request on that first trip that Jesus refused to answer. You know, when the demons said, hey, send us into the pigs, Jesus granted their request. When the people said, we don't want you here, Jesus 
granted their request, got in the boat and left. But the one prayer, the one request he did not answer with a yes was that of the demoniac who said, oh, Lord, I don't want to stay here. I want to come with you. And Jesus said, no, you're not coming with me. Stay here and tell the people what great things God has done for you. Boy, had he done his work. Now listen, folks. It is in the Decapolis. It is on this second trip that Jesus feeds the 4,000. Not long before this, Jesus had fed the 5,000. On, on the other side in Judea. And these 5,000 people, he started with a boy's lunch. Remember five loaves and two small fish? Do you remember how many basketfuls of leftovers they took up after that? Anybody remember? 12, that's exactly right. How many tribes of Israel are there? 12, all right. I think Jesus is saying when the, when the 5,000 were being fed, that at the end, he always supplies more than enough, and by there being 12 basketfuls, I think he's saying, you are my people, I am going to take care of you. Do not, do not worry, do not be afraid, I've got your back. Now, on the other side, these people were with him for three days. Listen to him preach and teach for three days. This is another one of those incredible three-day stories. And Jesus finally, at the, on the third day, says, you know, these folks need to be fed. And the disciples don't seem to care. They gave the same lame answer that they had just shortly before that. Well, where are we going to buy bread? You see, hadn't they already seen Jesus do that with the loaves and the fish? Yes. But that was in Judea. That was for God's people. Surely Jesus wouldn't do the same kind of miracle for these idolatrous, pork-eating, Jew-hating people on the other side. Surely he wouldn't. Jesus said, how many loaves of bread do you have? And collectively... The disciples came up with seven loaves. Jesus fed the 4,000. Do you know how many baskets they collected afterwards? How many baskets of leftovers? Seven. Do you remember how many Canaanite tribes inhabited the Decapolis? Seven. Do you know what Jesus is saying here to these people on the other side? You are my people too. I love you too. I want to restore your lives too. I have your back too. And as a Gentile, which most of us in this room, I assume are, are, aren't you glad that Jesus believed that about those on the other side in the Decapolis, just as he believed that about those in Judea? I'm eternally grateful that Jesus gave us this promise, that his peace is for all who will come to him. Jesus took the disciples way out of their comfort zones to teach them two two vital truths, and he teaches us the same. He is greater than any power or force or fear at work in this world, number one. And secondly, all people, all people matter to him. It's easy to want Jesus as our savior to restore and rescue us from the graveyard of a spiritual death but we struggle about him being our master. But I, I'm here to tell you this morning, he, you can't have one without the other. You can't have him be your savior without him also being your master. He's the only one who can break your chains and fill you with peace. He's the only one who can calm your fears and restore your mental and emotional sanity. So here's our challenge. First and foremost, surrender our fears and pain to the master. Let him rid your life of those things or thoughts or thorny issues that possess you. And secondly, 
Take his message of restoration to those who are on the other side. Step out of your comfort zone. Share your lives with those who are desperate to find restoration but don't know where to go to find it because that restoration is only in Jesus because their pain is real, their need is great, and our God wants them to find his son too. And like the former demoniac, Share your restoration story. Tell others how much Jesus has done for you, and I guarantee all the people will be amazed. And you see, the heartbeat of our restoration story is the heartbeat of God's restoration story. It is the ultimate three-day story of when Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. When Jesus did for us what nobody else could do, when he took our brokenness on the cross and gave us new life.